Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined, as always, by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Linnea Holdings from California. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm great. Just fired up to talk some Grateful Dead and weed. Let's get to it. Yep, we got a lot to cover, uh, a lot of good stuff online here today. But as always, we like to give the uh, listeners a little taste of what's to come when we get to uh, that point in the show in a few minutes where we're really going to dissect a... Uh, a show from today in Grateful Dead history. Uh, it happens to be a nice show from February 7th, 1979 at the uh, campus of Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, just a stone's throw from St. Louis. And uh, it's going to be a great show. And it's actually a lot of fun because the uh, the boys come out and they uh, open up with a, uh, a tune that you don't always typically see them open with and uh, probably comes a little bit more towards the end of the set. It's not a song that, that people go home and brag about hearing. But here it's kind of interesting, and we'll tell you why in a minute. So, Dan, why don't you go ahead and run that for us? A girl I love, she's sweet and true. And the dress she wears, sweet mama, is pink and blue. She brings me coffee, she brings me tea. Don't ease me in. Don't ease me in. I love it. It's fun. Sometimes you hate it because you know they're coming to the end of a set and you're like, oh, don't end it with that. But it was nice here. And, and I you know, got to tell you, Rob, it's one of those songs, even the songs that I don't always like, there's always a part of them that I do and that, you know, when Jerry just rips into the girl I love, man, that's, you know, you, you can almost judge a, a set by uh, the energy he puts into that thing. I totally agree. And I love it in the slot where it is, where it's uh, opening the set instead of closing the set. Because, it, like, as you said, it's, when it's a set closer, you're kind of hoping for something a little bit more like a, a deal or music never stopped or, um, you know, some other sort of, you know, sort of straight jam. And Donnie's is such a short one that always, as we talked about before, feels like it's sort of a throwaway just to tack on at the end. But if Jerry's in a good mood and he comes in strong on that verse, it, uh, it always gives you a sense of, like, kind of how the night's going to go or how, you know, the show's going to And then there's a handful of, of lyrics out there. That you're kind of waiting for like you know like how does he treat um uh, wish i was a headline on a northbound train in china cat right uh or in rider excuse me if he actually bells that one out then you know it's a good night you know just like there's there's certain lines where you sort of come to expect that this is gonna be a harbinger of how the rest of the night's gonna go yep i think that's very true and uh you know what just cracks me up about it though is you know, we talk so much about, oh, this was the last time they played uh, Dark Star for five years, the last time they played St. Stephen. And, you know, we always wonder about what motivates them to stop playing one of those songs that has such a strong popular following. And, you know, not to diss on Donnie's too much, but I think it's probably safe to say that that's a tune that if it dropped out of the Dead's repertoire tomorrow, not a lot of Deadheads would lose a lot of sleep over it. And, you know, they made a conscious effort to stop playing it back in 1974, and then just as much, they made a conscious effort to bring it back and to kick off a show with it. And, you know, as far as I can tell, I think it's pretty much stayed in their in their uh, playlist all the way through to the end. I, I guess it's just one of those songs like Around and Around that, you know, don't always have the energy you're looking for in a dead tune, but, you know, really give Jerry a chance to kind of rock out a little bit. For sure. And it's really funny because there's very few songs that you think about that actually have stayed in the repertoire all the way through. I mean, even, had, even if it had like a four or five year pause... You know, songs that actually started off in 66, 67 that, you know, stayed all the way through, or there's few and far between. So when we were talking about last week where, 
you know, you always forget there's a life before trucking. You know, there was, you know, seven years that the Grateful Dead played before that song came out, right? Donnie is, was, that was there from the beginning, you know, and you think about all the other songs that they shelved and all the other songs they decided they just weren't going to do anymore. And granted, you know, a handful of them were because they were pig pen tunes. It just didn't make any sense to, uh, without pig. But, you know, some of them were just, you know, sort of too weird and psychedelic. They didn't want to do them anymore. But Donnie's was something that they just enjoyed playing and kept in and said, okay, here's a, a three and a half, four minute rocker. That's just fun to play. You know, I, I think that's right. And, you know, it, it, I think every band needs a tune like that where they rock out, right? I mean, for me, like with Fish, it's Sample in a Jar, you know, where all of a sudden they, they play a really tight three or four minute song. And, you know, there's just a lot of great, uh, you know, if you if you like that kind of, uh, you know, hardcore rock and roll guitar playing and licks and everything and all the hooks they throw in there. But, uh, yeah, Don't Ease is fun. And um, uh, it just kind of set the night for the show. There's some funny stories behind it. And we'll get to it in a few minutes. Uh, because it's it's definitely going to be worth talking about today. But uh, first up, let's dive into a uh, little bit of marijuana news. What do you think? We have some. There's definitely a lot to talk about this week. There is, and both our, our first two stories really, uh, in, in the you know in in a way deal with the same gentleman, the same house rep from Colorado, Ed Perlmutter, and show both uh, how important he is, and uh, also unfortunately, as we're going to see. Here in a second, he has announced that he's not going to be seeking re-election in 2022. Rob, I see that as a uh, as a as a big blow, but not necessarily a fatal blow uh, to the federal legalization efforts. Ed has always been one of the strongest supporters that there is, certainly in getting things through the House and uh, propping them up as best as can be for the Senate. And you know, I mean, he's been there for a while. He's done his time, and he's certainly entitled to his his time away. But there's a part of me that can't help but wonder. If at the end of the day, uh, you know, the way politics now have just gotten into this, you know, really kind of nasty type of situation, are we losing people like Ed Perlmutter? Um, you know, and what impact do you think it has on the legalization effort? Yeah, first of all, let's just start off by giving a great deal of thanks to all the work that Ed has put in on behalf of the cannabis industry. And there's a lot of guys out there that, you know, act as, you know, kind of quasi-advocates for the industry, but ultimately I don't think have really gotten all that much done. Ed has. Ed's been there, you know, front and center for a long time. And, and by the way, shout out to a lot of Colorado politicians for doing that. And, you know, like him or hate him, you know, on, on the cannabis side, John Hickenlooper has certainly pushed a lot of legislation through. And he's, uh, some people in the industry haven't, haven't been pleased by the, the work he's done. But even in the Senate side, we've, we've had guys that, uh, that have stood up and said, you know, I'm back in Colorado and I'm backing sort of the federalist states' rights on this. So, you know, Perlmutter's been terrific, Jared Polis has been terrific, Colorado not only has led the charge in, you know, its voters changing policy in this country, but certainly led the charge that the, uh, the politicians that allowed it to happen have stood up and stood behind those voters and really championed the cause. So, you know, thank you to Colorado and thank you to Ed Perlmutter. In the same way, I'd say that, you know, a guy like uh, Blumenauer has done as well. So, do I think it's going to affect it? No, I mean, I, I think that, you know, in many the same ways I look at the work that, you know, some of the early funders of cannabis legislation, you know, guys like um, Soros and, and George Zimmer and, you know, some of the other guys that uh, for progressive insurance um, gentlemen, those guys paved away and said, hey, we're going to pass the baton now. Now it's up to you guys as an industry to stand yourselves up. I think a lot of these politicians said, you know, we'll do everything we can to get it to a certain point, And now it's up to the industry to really take over and push legislation you know, across the country. So, you know, thanks to the work they've done, it's probably up to us now to continue it. Well, I think that's fair, and I think that's uh, a, a nice tribute to, uh, uh, to Representative Perlmutter. And, yes, to the state of Colorado, where even, you know, many of their uh, Republican uh, uh, legislators and, and senators have been uh, 
you know, very, very much pro-cannabis because, of course, it benefits their state to such a great degree. They can really see that, and it's a wonderful thing. And, of course, you know, for Ed, really, you know, it might be fair to say that one of the landmark things that he's done in this area is, is help author the safe banking bill, which we've talked about before that would allow uh, banking services, traditional banking services to be provided to uh, uh, licensed cannabis businesses in those states that have cannabis uh, laws and, and statutes, whether it's medical or adult use. Although it's always enjoyed great popularity in the House, unfortunately, the safe banking bill uh, has not been able to make any real traction in the Senate. And we've talked in the past about what some of the problems have been in the Senate with that. And we don't have to dive back into all of that again, other than to say that before he walks out the door, Ed is trying one last time to get this passed. And we have talked in the past about how uh, the uh, safe banking bill was hooked up to the uh, annual um, defense spending bill. Uh, the thought being that, you know, we typically pass the defense spending bill without too much trouble. Uh, and that might be a good way to kind of piggyback this one along. Uh, ultimately, it didn't work out for a number of reasons. And so now uh, the, the new goal uh, in our next story here is that they're going to try again, only this time they want to attach it to a domestic spending bill. Now, Rob, here's my question. Uh, once again, I, I see the point uh, in terms of what they're trying to do, and, and that's not an uncommon tactic in politics, especially in Washington, D.C. But my impression of one of the things that caused it to fail was the uh, with the military uh, spending bill was the fact that these bills all have to be approved again on an annualized basis. And by passing it, the, the Safe Banking Act is attached to one of these bills. Doesn't that necessarily bring it up again each year that the, the host bill that it's attached to gets brought up to see how it's going to be changed or be renewed? And although we're always going to have domestic spending and military spending, there's no sure bet that each year Congress will pass it with the Safe Banking Act attached. No, there isn't. But, you know, at the same time, if we've got any sort of, um, you know, comp to look at, it's that the previously known as Rombacher Farr, and then the, uh, the now it's called the Blumenauer Amendment, that does get tacked on every year to the uh, the omnibus spending package, and it's now passed, I think, for 10 or 11 years running. So if you actually have it go through one time, then very likely it's going to go through again. The big difference, though, between the Spending Act, excuse me, the uh, Safe Banking Act and um, the, the act that protects you know, medical cannabis in general is that in this case, um, you're asking banks to change their behavior. We've talked about it before, and I can tell you that there's no major bank that's going to change their behavior based on something that's only an annual bill, and it's not something that's actually you know, permanent in the, uh, in the House. Now, on top of that, you know, look, there was no appetite to stick it on the defense authorization bill previously for SAFE. So do I think that, you know, it, anything's different this time? I mean, what's the old adage that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? You know, the, the composition of the House hasn't changed since December. So I don't know why people think that this, is, this time is going to be different. And, uh, and, and every time, like, you know, the markets fall for the head fake, it's actually worse for the companies that are, are public. You know, it, it drives prices up with a saccharin high for a minute and then just pushes them right back down past the point they were before because people go, oh, there's no appetite for this. You know, it's almost better just to let things move forward until you know for sure it's going to pass on a, uh, on a full-time basis, not an annualized basis. I think that's also a great point. And, and you're right. You know, we have to – I guess it's just frustrating because, right, there's a rush to want to get it done. But by the same token, there's a, you know, there's, there's a common sense in getting it done the right way. And, you know, you, you, you make a, a, a point that we should all be thinking about in terms of, you know, it, it's going to be hard enough to get 
uh, you know, the banking industry, which is very much set in its ways to begin with, you know, even before we get to the fact that we're dealing with cannabis, and ask that industry to make wholesale changes into how they're going to handle their accounts with cannabis customers based only on a, 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 a bill that will be annualized and have to keep coming up. And that, that you're right. I, I think we would be, uh, it, it wouldn't be realistic to expect that. On the other hand, and I, and I do agree, I do agree with the definition of insanity, but that's what I like about Perlmutter, right? He's one of those guys who says, screw the insanity. I'm going to keep pushing. And even if this is my last year, I'm going to push it one more time and I'm going to try and find whatever creative way I can come up with it. And even when it doesn't pass, right, at least people are talking about it and people see it out there and people understand that it's an issue. And, you know, it, it gets people, I, I hope, you know, focused on that. And in terms of, uh, well, we may not be able to get it done yet, but maybe we can get it done. And in, in, in that regard, I guess the story that I, you know, that always resonates with me is, uh, Illinois State Legislator Lou Lang, uh, who happens to be from my my district where I live here, uh, although he just retired this last year, uh, but State Senator Lang was instrumental in getting medical marijuana passed in Illinois in 2013. He had been bringing basically the same bill to the floor of the Illinois House every year, 10, 11, 12 years to the point where nobody really took it seriously anymore. We all expect once a year to read a story uh, Lou Lang brings his bill and it gets shut down again. And then all of a sudden in 2013, it passed by two votes. I can't tell you what changed other than the fact that other states had, had now launched medical marijuana programs. And I think that uh, Lang was able to make a good case, uh, you know, for the financial side of it and the, and the medical side of it and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, here was a guy, if, if he had, you know, kind of given in, to the, you know, I think to the way most of us feel, which is summed up with what you said, uh, things don't get done. So we, we really need people like Lou Lang, um, uh, you know, to be able to help us out here, or Ed Perlmutter, who are really just willing to keep taking the fight out there. And one of these times it's going to get through. Look, I absolutely agree with that. There's only, the, you know, my, I guess my counter to that is a question of optics. It's not a question of, of persistence. So, you know, from a persistence standpoint, I love watching people reintroduce bills and I love watching them, you know, continue to, to keep the fight up and keep the pressure on because it's the right thing to do. But from an optics perspective, when it fails, then, you know, the public looks at it and goes, oh, this thing's never going to happen. And, you know, look, it's gone through three times. It's been shot down in flames. There's, so in, in some ways, like, I understand, like, sort of the Mitch McConnell way of doing uh, politics, which is you never put something on the floor unless you know the result. Same way as an attorney. You don't ask a question in a uh, deposition or be on the stand unless you know what the answer's going to be, right? If, if there's anything that you're leaving to chance, it's best not to do it. So sometimes I think that when it comes to introducing a canvas bill to the, to the floor, uh, introduce it when you know it's got the votes to pass or when you know it's got the, uh, you know, if, it, if it's not going to pass, is there any sort of political capital that's gained by putting other people on their back feet by, by forcing them to say no to something that you know is terribly popular in their district? And, uh, and, and that's where I'm not seeing the, the utility sometimes of tacking these on to, to, as riders when they're probably not going to pass anyway or go through with that rider. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about it in that way, right? Because it's here we are, you know, on the federal level trying to find a way, you know, to address this issue. Uh, and we haven't yet been able to quite find it, which I think is is probably just as much a good example of the fact that marijuana is still so new. People just aren't quite sure what to do with it, maybe, uh, and how to really handle it. But, but do you still feel that way, Larry? Because I don't anymore. I mean, I feel like this is like... You know, legalization in Colorado now is going on, you know, 15 years. Uh, you know, we've got legalization on, on uh, even adult use now for 10 years in, in you know, multiple states. 
so there's, you know, it, I no longer feel that when people say, oh, this is a brand new industry. Is it? Because we've got companies doing a billion dollars in top line revenue a year right now. It's not that new. It's just, it's not where it should be. It's still just terribly, terribly overregulated. Okay. I, I, I will agree with that. And I think that, uh, you know, you do make a good distinction there that's important to note. But I, but I do have a sense overall that, you know, that it, and, and in fact, it kind of frustrates me even more that given what you just said, which is entirely true, we still do have some legislators who aren't quite willing to pull the trigger, who aren't quite willing to step forward. You know, a, a, a safe license, uh, a safe act is, is an act that benefits everyone, you know, and it shouldn't have to get to the point where we're trying to tag it on uh, to other bills and slip it through even on just a one-year basis you know, to be able to get it out there. Nevertheless, you know, people have to act in the time frame that they feel the most comfortable acting. And the point you made, though, about optics is huge. And being from Illinois, it's an issue that resonates with me and with a lot of us here in Illinois so loudly because, yet again, we're demonstrating that we're the state that just can't ever seem to get it right when it comes to these kind of things. You know, whether people just assume that everyone in Illinois is on the take or they assume that everyone in Illinois files lawsuits or they assume that, you know, everyone in Illinois is just in it for themselves, which all are probably true to one degree or another. Um, but we all know that the licenses that were supposed to have been issued uh, by April of uh, 2020 and then July of 2020, uh, Dispensary and Craft Grow uh, have, have kind of finally been awarded, but not in any kind of a final way. The, the dispensary licenses that have been issued uh, have not been given the green light to go forward. Um, and there are a certain number of craft uh, grow licenses that were basically pulled out of a hat and were told, okay, you get to go forward. And then there was going to be another round. And before another round could begin, the lawsuits began. And you know, there was all sorts of questions as to what level of relief the court would grant if they were inclined to grant relief. And in some instances, it was as severe as not just stopping the awarding of new licenses, but going back and maybe even forcing people to turn their licenses back in to say that all the, 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 the lottery systems had not worked properly. But this lawsuit, interestingly enough, was brought by somebody who wasn't asking him to go back and change the first 40 that had been awarded. He was coming to say that the state had to require, uh, the state was required to issue new licenses because we had now run into the month of December 20 of 2021 when the second round of licenses were going to be awarded. And the idea was that we'll go make the court, or we'll go sue uh, in court to, to get them to basically enter an order of mandamus, right, to tell these guys this is what you have to do and to get this program up and running. And instead this week, the Illinois Supreme Court uh, came out and basically uh, uh, agreed with the plaintiff to the extent that uh, we kind of have to maintain the status quo for a little while. So although they have affirmed that the, uh, the 40 licenses that were previously issued uh, can continue forward with their licensing and registration process, uh, that the Illinois Department of Agriculture is not allowed to award any more adult use craft grow marijuana licenses in Illinois until this underlying lawsuit uh, regarding the way that the licenses are being awarded uh, is resolved. So it's, it's, it's going to be more delay uh, it's going to take longer. Um, and and the, the, basically the argument brought by the plaintiff, and we've talked about this before, was you're killing us. We have to pay money to landlords to keep our space. We have to pay money to the equipment companies who we're buying our, our cultivation equipment from to keep it on hand. So when we get our license, we're ready to roll within the, the six-month uh, deadline you're giving us to set up. 
we have to pay our lawyers to keep figuring out what's going on with all of this. These these uh, people are being bled dry, and you know, to me, it sounded like they had a pretty convincing argument, and the, the hope was that the state would say, you know what, enough already. Let's go forward. People who don't get a license this time, there's going to be five more rounds. You'll get a license eventually. Let's go. But instead, they've taken this other approach, and although it'll be nice to have a few more craft grows, I'm not sure that 40 craft grows is really enough to kind of offset the uh, the imbalance of what's been happening in the Illinois adult use market. Yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, the, the standpoint that is taken from a lot of these groups is they don't care. You know, if a company goes out of business, that's not their problem. It's the problem of the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur goes in thinking they've got a you know, great opportunity only to find out they're being tied up in red tape, you know, in perpetuity. And, and you know, they can be bled drive. I've got a, a group I work very closely with where I've watched them spend, you know, well north of a half a million dollars just to keep a property live while they're waiting on, you know, other things to happen. That company can't can't weather that storm. You know they, they've been waiting for investment capital to come in. The investment capital you know can't come in until a lease is signed. The lease can't get signed until X, Y, and Z happens. And uh, everyone sits there looking at it going, oh well, that's the that's the chance you take if you want to be a cannabis entrepreneur. In no other industry would you feel that way. And then once you actually open it up, you know then you're still having to borrow money at egregious rates. You're still having to to pay the state you know egregious amounts of money. The sales tax is high. The excise tax is high. The the federal tax is high. Everything else. So, like, you know, I find it to be um, amazing that there's still so many people that are clamoring to get into this industry. And it's kind of, you know, the old adage when whenever you ask an attorney, like, yeah, I'm thinking about going to law school. What do you think? They go, like, don't do it. Stay away. You know, it's the, the idea of, you know, starting a cannabis business right now, I'm certainly not discouraging anyone from, from wanting to, uh, to go into that vocation. But I'll tell you, it ain't all it's cracked up to be in a lot of ways. You know, there's a, a great deal of more headwinds than you'd ever expect to see because it's so hyper overregulated. And part of that overregulation is things that are beyond your control as an entrepreneur that you have to you have to stomach all sorts of things you would never expect to have to deal with. I mean, like when you build any other business, the worst thing you're dealing with normally is like the permitting process, you know, and like does the does it take a while to actually get the inspector to come in and, and make sure you built properly. But other than that, you know, the, you can open up anywhere. You can open up against anyone. You can do all sorts of things. You don't have to find a zoning you know, variance that works. You don't have to get permission. You don't have to win a merit-based application. You don't have to, you know, plus, 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 plus. And then even after the application, as you said, then you have to deal with whether or not there's litigation that stays the entire process for another year, which, by the way, no commercial landlord cares one iota if you didn't get your license. If you sign that lease, guess what? Pay me. That's it. It's a, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of these guys. But I'll tell you, it, it, what's worse is, it, it, in some respects, it's not even signed the lease. It's right, we signed the, uh, the option. Okay, at the very beginning, it's going to take four months for them to decide who the winners are. Fine, you'll pay me $1,000 a month or $500 a month you know, to hold, the, to hold the option open for that period of time. When they push it out for two years, that's a lot of option payments to make. So, and a thousand's a nice number. Wait until it's forty thousand. Wait until it's you know some number that you go, my goodness, this is absurd. So it's you know the option payments. So the landlord will do an option payment like that if they already have an existing tenant and they go, hey, look, we're you know, it's a month to month. It's a tenancy, um, you know, that that I can uh, end at any time. So, you know, for that reason, I'm not in a worse position. But if you've got a vacant building and that vacant building is waiting for someone to sign a lease and the landlord goes, look, otherwise I could be running this to, you know, 10 other people, the option payments probably going to be commensurate with what the rent payment was going to be just to hold it. And it's... Uh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times what winds up happening is all of a sudden the landlord shows up and says, guess what? I'm your new partner. You know, because if you don't work out a deal with them and they cancel the option, 
you have a duty to report it to the Department of Agriculture. And while we're sitting here waiting to find out who's going to get the licenses or not, you don't want to be calling in and saying, hi, I lost my property. Yeah, but I'll go a step further than that, which is that, you know, in the early days of cannabis in Colorado, and damn, I remember this, it, you want to talk about absurd, it was a landlord saying, yeah, come on in, you know, I'll sign a lease with you, do a bunch of TI in the place, you know, I'm not going to give you a TI allowance, you want to build out this facility, you can put all the tenant improvements in, you spend a million dollars on the property, and then they come in and go, oh, sorry, guys, I've got to, you know, kick you out, because either I've got to refi and my, my bank won't allow me to do this, or they say things like, we're going to avoid this contract due to illegality. And you say, illegality? Like, you know, you're on notice for what we were doing. And they say, yeah, sorry, you know, it just isn't going to work. And we turn around and re-rent the place to another cannabis operator at 2x the rent they charged you. And that happened so consistently that, A, people started buying their own buildings as a result. And, B, if you didn't buy, you know, your own building, you would put a waiver inside your contract saying, you know, you're on notice that this is still federally illegal and that I'm only complying with state, you know, state legal gifts. And I think every contract you do today, Larry, probably has that clause in it. But it didn't back in 2009, 2010. It didn't. And I have to tell you, I put it in every contract today. But, you know, I still have clients who come to me and they say, well, you know, I've got my own real estate attorney and the real estate attorney is taking care of all of that. And I'll ask them that very question. Do they have a provision in there in terms of what, when the, what can and cannot the lease be terminated for? And do they specifically address the issue of cannabis and the fact that it's federally illegal? Because if they don't, you're not in a very safe place right now. And it, you know, it's one of those things I use as a pitch to people why, you know, it's no different than anything else. If you're going to go into cannabis, I don't care if you've got the, you know, the greatest attorney who you've worked with your whole life. If he or she can't answer your questions about the cannabis industry, if they don't have experience with it, you're exposing yourself. Get a new attorney. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, there's, there's a reason people specialize in different areas of the law. And there's a reason people specialize in different areas of, of, of business, you know. So whatever it is, whatever it is that you're looking to, to do, you might need to hire a banker in a specific situation if you're trying to do an M&A transaction. You might need to hire an attorney. But with a cannabis business, you might need, you might need to hire six attorneys. You might need one that does, you know, your legal work for, for your real estate transactions, one that does your tax, one that does, you know. And if they actually don't understand how different provisions of the cannabis industry work, I mean, again, this speaks to careful what you wish for when you go, oh, I want to open a dispensary. Uh, really? Because I don't think most people have any idea what that entails and just how much uh, capital is required just in like getting everything right and just going through what could be 15 different contracts, you know, between you and the capital and, you know, contracts between you and the landlords and contracts between you and the city and the state. You know, there, there's a lot, a lot that needs to be done there. You know, again, you and I can have like a legal conversation all all day about this stuff because I think we both, you know, kind of seen everything from a financial standpoint and from a legal standpoint. But um, let's talk about music, man, because it makes me a hell of a lot happier. <laughs> you know, let's talk. Let's talk about the Grateful Dead, man. Yeah, no, we've got some great things to talk about, and um, on the music side, just really quickly, I, I just have to throw in that I was able uh, again to see uh, Tedeschi Trucks this well. For me, which is this past weekend, uh, I know that uh, will come out a, a few days from now, uh, but it was the, the third of their four-night residency at the uh, Chicago Theater, which is just such a tremendous place to see them. Uh, and they come out, and they just consistently, we, we just say it every time. I mean, I guess there's not a whole lot more to say, right? He's the best guitar player around. She's amazing as can be. 
They've got great vocals, but you know, at the end of the day, a lot of it just comes down to the tunes. You know, they're doing a Taj Mahal cover, a Delaney and Bonnie cover. Uh, they're, you know, was, of course, we get our share of uh, uh, a great dreams uh, from the Allman Brothers, and then they go and you know they decide they're going to do a Dylan song, but you know they don't just do any of the Dylan songs that are you know typically being played. They go deep into his catalog to pull out "Down in the Flood," and and play it as though that they do it all the time as, as good as it is. And then of course, uh, the encore really, I think should probably be the theme song for our show. Let's go get stoned, uh, from the coasters. But, uh, uh, you know, they're playing that and they got everybody on their feet clapping and yelling and, uh, they're just up there having a great time and it's great to have live music. And, it, you know, and they're, they're a great band to go see, please folks, if you have a chance to go see Tedeschi trucks and you don't take advantage of it, you are missing out on a rock and roll experience. It'll be like saying, I could have seen Dwayne Allman, but I didn't. You don't want to miss this guy. He's that good. No doubt. No doubt. And uh, and also, I think we should give a shout out to uh, the, the anniversary, the 29th anniversary of the album Rift coming out by Fish, which I think was released on Groundhog's Day in 93. So this week I've been listening to a lot of Rift as a as a result of kind of going, oh yeah, I forgot that that one came out. And it's amazing that it's been 29 years. And I always think about, you know, how long ago it's been since, you know, some of the Grateful Dead stuff we've listened, you know, we listened to, but you forget that, you know, Panic and Aquarium Rescue Unit and Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors and all those guys all came out, you know, hitting their first strides, you know, 29, 30 years ago of just when all those bands popped, you know, sort of the post-Horde Tour uh, success that, that all those bands had when they were all individually, you know, terrific, but I'd say 93, 94, 95, uh, you know, I'd say that you know Horde Tour did a, a great deal to influence everything we know about jam band and live music going forward, um, and that all happened kind of in a period of creativity with all those bands that brought us you know Jimmy Herring and brought us Trey and brought us Popper and you know brought us Chris Barron, so really really cool stuff with a bunch of artists that you know we're we're now looking thirty years back on that as well. Well, I'll tell you it's funny that you mentioned Groundhog Day only because today. We're actually taping on Groundhog Day, even though this will uh, air a few days later. Uh, but this is the 38th anniversary of uh, uh, my group of East Coast uh, Deadhead buddies and I. We'd always look for things to do to get together. And as you know, we know, this time of year was not necessarily an active touring time for the Grateful Dead. So we'd always be looking for other stuff to do. And my good buddy uh, Dan from uh, Penn uh, suggested that we all meet up in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, on Groundhog's Day 1984, so my buddy Harold and I drove from Ann Arbor. My buddy Mike and his roommate Petey came down from Ithaca. Dan came over from Penn. We all met up in Punxsutawney and had two or three, it seemed like two or three days, maybe it was the movie, I don't know. Most fun, we, you know, you could have sitting around drinking stony beers and uh, just partying with all the locals and going out for the big event. And if you've never been to Groundhog's Day, yeah, you know, it's worth seeing, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, so just, you know, the fact that that's been 38 years, we were all, uh, my buddies and I were all uh, uh, texting back and forth about how long it's been and thinking we may have to go out there for the 40th anniversary in a couple of years. And who knows, maybe that'd be a great place to do a, a you know, an on-location podcast taping from too. So, you know, we can scoop the world on whether Phil sees his shadow or not. But, uh, yes. Well, I always did, I always did it a little bit differently, Larry. I usually would uh you know, wait to see whether my bomb came out of the closet, and if it did, it was six more weeks of tour. <laughs> or whether your mom had found it and threw it away, which didn't bode well. Exactly, yeah, so, so you, know, you have to find ways that, that guaranteed more shows for you. So I'm like, ah, oh, my, my bomb saw its shadow through the, uh, through the window, so I guess, uh, I guess six more weeks of uh, summer shows. No, that's excellent. That's, that's actually very funny, and yes, I think that, you know, it could be just like that. And, you know, and speaking of... You know, summer, there's going to be so much good music this summer. And one of the things that I just saw pop up is 
uh, Dark Star Orchestra doing their ninth Dark their ninth Dark Star Jubilee uh, from Legend Valley in Thornville, Ohio, uh, at the end of May, and they're gonna they're gonna do six sets. But and I love those guys, so I'm sure that would be great. But what really has me excited is that Railroad Earth and Peter Rowan are going to uh, cover the album Olden in the Way. Yeah, I saw that. And I think John Catalasic, I think, is also sitting in with uh, with his old band for a little bit, isn't he, as part of that? Is he? I, I haven't heard that yet, but that would be wonderful if he was. But I definitely saw that Peter Rowan is playing Olden in the Way, which, you know, that, that by itself is, uh, is well worth going to check out. And if anyone hasn't seen Railroad Earth out there, those guys are so much fun. There's, uh, you know, for, for Jersey bluegrass pickers, uh, they, they pick as well as anyone does. Yep. So, you know, just seeing that gets me excited and gets me thinking about, uh, uh, you know, the upcoming summer and, and hopefully having a chance to go out and see some great shows. And just one other thing to throw in here that's always fun to talk about. Dave's Picks 41 has dropped. It is a show from the Baltimore Civic Center in uh, May of 1977, which we all know is is one of the you know the, the landmark years for the Grateful Dead. Yeah, no one likes May 77. Come on, man. Yeah, I know. Whatever. What can I tell you? <laughs> but you know, I don't know why you like why release anything from May 77 when like every Deadhead out there already has it. But this show is a terrific show. Yeah, it's true, and not only is the show good, but you know, Rob, as you were pointing out, give me give him your comment about the song selection, uh, song the order of the songs. It, it, it's a reverse first set, you know, it opens with the music and closes with a Bertha, you know, and now as it closes the Bertha, it's, it's a, a Jack Arrow Minglewood Bertha, right. and, you know, you think about a traditional first set, you know, if you were to say it opened with Bertha Minglewood Jack Arrow, you go, yeah, that sounds about right, but they have those as the closers and have music as the opener, and then, by the way, throwing a deal into the middle of a first set, right. which, you know, like, deals don't, don't come in the middle, deals are, are set closers. So uh, exactly, it, it's a uh, it's a fun one. I mean, obviously the set list in seventies, you know, in the late seventies were a lot different than you know kind of what you expect in the mid to late eighties and early nineties. But you know, there's a handful of songs that um, yeah you wouldn't expect them to be in that slot. Uh, whether it's you know throwing a high time in the second set or a big river in the second set, or throwing you know some of the the other stuff that you know you see in the first like a passenger in the first set. It's just uh, it, it's a bit of a reverse set list, but the first set specifically, it almost feels like someone woke up and played it backwards. It does, and you know, in all fairness to her, Donnie gets a little airtime here with uh, Sunrise, so you know, it's it's a uh, equal opportunity yeah, set. You had to ruin it, didn't you? Hey, come on now, <laughs> you know, we we all love Donna, and you know, I, I do I, I do love Donna, but I'm not a huge Sunrise fan in any slot. No, well, you know, neither was I. You know, at least I never tried to play France, so I guess that's the that's the benefit there. Now, the second set uh, is great because, as you say, I mean, they open with a Samson, which is not atypical, but then a high time in a big river, which is great. And then from there, this show just takes off and it just explodes, right? Terrapin into Estimated, into Eyes, into Not Fade, into Going Down the Road, back into, uh, oh, then into Around and Around. So I, I, that's what? That's an uh, almost well over an hour of just nonstop amazing Grateful Dead and it's it sounds as good as it looks uh they close it up with a tremendous Uncle John's band and it, it, it's really really just a great show and as much as I sit around hoping that Dave's going to start releasing you know more mid-1980 shows and boy haven't we done the 70s enough no the short answer is you cannot get enough of May 77 and uh this is just a great one to, to listen to yeah I agree and definitely worth pointing out and again thank you to David Lemieux for uh for you know continuously putting out great music um, you know, with all the all the choices you have to listen to music out there, there's still nothing better than a remastered CD that uh, that really gives the full feeling. Uh, as good as some of those archive.org you know posts are out there, 
they don't do justice to what can be done if you actually go back into the studio and remaster. And I, you know, appreciate the work that Dave Lemieux and before that Dick Latvala put in to do this work. It's true, and and you know, it, the one thing that that's that's not apparent from just looking at a set list if you're calling up the show on your computer is the 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 order of the songs on the CD. Now the the, the concert itself plays out, you know, first set on disc one, second set split between disc two and three, pretty common. But at the end of disc two, they drop in some filler material. And the filler material is the song U.S. Blues from Deer Creek, uh, July 19th, 1990. And, you know, sharp listeners will remember that we, we, we have talked about the uh, Deer Creek show because that was released as Dick's pick, uh, Dave's Picks number 40. And now when I'm first looking at this, uh, a filler tune that's, you know, sometimes, okay, fine, they, they, they buckle back in the encore out of order, but usually from the same show or maybe from the night before or the night after, this is a show uh, 13 years down the road, and they're just dropping in a random U.S. blues until I did go back and realize that this was Dave's Picks 40. And as we may have mentioned when we talked about it, for the, 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 the uh, July 19th show, they ran out of room, and they dropped the encore, which was this version of U.S. blues. So next Dave's Picks, boom, they tag it on. So you still have all of the material from the uh, from the prior show it's so creative it's, it's you know it's, it, and again it kind of like you know forces you to think like okay are they daisy chaining these things like are you paying attention guys because you know hey we didn't finish the last one so we're going to start it off it's it's sort of like you know like um you know when you play a tweezer reprise uh you know because you forgot to play it you know a couple shows earlier and, and trail remind the crowd like hey we you know we didn't get a chance to do it last time so here we go to finish it up or you know, as we talked about, like you know, when the dead opened up a first set one night with the sugar mags, and then closed the final night with a um, with a sunshine daydream, you know, as a as a second encore. But it, again, it's like, are you paying attention? Do you kind of understand what it is we're trying to do with our craft and our art? But you know, from the same side, the um, the the engineers, you know, like Dave Lemieux in this case, going, hey, you, you might not have noticed we were missing the U.S. Blues before, but here it is for those of you that are actually paying yep. attention. And I love that. That's true. I mean, that that really is, and you, and I'm sure. Uh, you know that the overwhelming majority of the people who buy this stuff and don't nerd out the way you and I do will just say, "Hey, I like U.S. Blues. I'm glad they threw it on there." And you know what? So it's 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 a win for everybody. <laughs> that's, that's probably the reaction from 95 percent of the people. It's only you and I that noticed the nuance of of like, ah, so n- nice catch on that one. And uh, yeah, you're right. I think most people just go, hey, it's, "It's nice to listen to a U.S. Absolutely. Blues." Um, but yeah, it, it, it's great. And, you know, I mean, I'm happy to support, uh, Dave, happy to support the dead with this because this is, you know, without, you know, beating the dead horse or anything, you know, we've talked about dead and co and everything. And on any given night, if you can give me a great grateful dead show to listen to, that's always going to be my preference. And thank God they're, they're putting out all this stuff and they continue to do so. And you just realize how, how many of how many they've already come out with and how many more there are to go before you know you could say we're now we'll we've really kind of gotten through the all of the class a shows and we're working our way down to the class b shows if you will there's class a shows forever and and, and this is one of them and and you know it's, it's always been interesting to me I, they really like baltimore they they play some really good shows in baltimore i can't tell you why but uh, it works out really well there well that's my point of like putting on a may 77 in general is, you know, there's so many Class A shows and there's so many Class A shows that people don't have access to, like, you know, a Betty Cantor board where, um, you know, pick some obscure ones sometimes and, and say that this is one that, you know, but for you know me putting it out, you probably would have no idea that it existed and how good this show was. But as I said, like, whenever I go to, like, you know, Hetty version or I go to, you know, Dead Bass and see what the best uh, version of a song is, 
Nine times out of ten, the song that's picked as the best version is a, uh, is a song from a tape that was very widely circulated and very widely traded and that everybody had in their collection. So everyone's like, oh, the, of the 50 tapes I have, that's my favorite. Well, those 50 tapes are the ones that are, you know, trade around to everyone. Once in a while, you catch something where you're like, wow, I've never heard that before. And it completely blows your mind. Those are the ones I wish, you, you know, um, uh, Dave Lemieux would actually pick. And he does a good job with that as well. But, you know. I'm not. I'm not knocking Baltimore. I'm not knocking '77, but I'm just saying um, I'm always more impressed by ones that like I've never had a chance to um, to listen to, and now I've heard them remastered for the first time, and they just completely and totally blow me away. Well, it's like for one of the last Dicks picks when they came out with the houseboat tapes, right? And I mean stuff that had been talked about and rumored to have existed for years, and you know, so nobody had heard it, and, and when they finally found the tapes and they were able to remaster them and put it out. To me, that was a, a, a classic moment because you're right. It, it's almost impossible these days to find some Grateful Dead that you haven't even heard that version or something very close in time in that time period. You know, they they do a great job, and I guess you know when when you love the Dead that much that you know you can you can you can be as excited walking into the vault on you know ten years later as you were on the very first day. And I'm sure Dave Lemieux is. He sure sounds like it. I know I would be. You, you know my feeling, man. I like February '79. Probably more than I like May '77. So, so let, let's let's talk some two seven seventy nine because you picked this one out today, and there's obviously a good reason, and pretty much because it's a straight rocker. You know, it it really is a straight rocker, and it's uh, it's a wonderful show. It's from a great location. Uh, me being from St. Louis, I have a little bit of an affinity uh, for SIU Carbondale. Uh, every summer they had the Mississippi River Musical Festival there with all sorts of acts from all over the place. They had a lot, a lot of big bands that came through and did landmark concerts there. And it was only fitting for the dead to finally make their way through there. Um, I like to really think of it as an extension of the St. Louis market, not unlike uh, Alpine Valley being an extension of the Chicago market. So, you know, maybe it was a little bit of that St. Louis magic rubbing off on them as well. Uh, It's a very, very solid show. But uh, what I love about this show is the backstory that goes along with it. That backstory is, you know, we're not breaking new ground here. Uh, this was written about by none other than Steve Parrish in his his book, Home Before Midnight, which is basically his autobiographical take on uh, being a roadie with the dead and particularly his relationship with Jerry uh, for so long. And uh, anybody who hasn't read that book, you're, you're missing out on stories that you have to know about, including this one, right? And, and the story here uh, is that about 15 minutes before the show, Rod Scully uh, comes walking backstage and meets up with um, uh, with Jerry and uh, with uh, Kid Candelario and with Steve Parrish, and he's got four Valiums. And uh, according to Parrish, you know, Jerry, he thinks being the playful guy that Jerry always is, reaches out and grabs all four of them and pretends to throw them in his mouth like he's taking all four of them. But he would never really do that because he's getting ready to walk out on stage until Steve sees him swallow and he thinks... Oh my God, Jerry just swallowed four Valiums and they're walking out on stage in 15 minutes and started freaking out about whether Jerry's going to be able to play. And, you know, the stories go on and on about how they they had to help him out there and then how he had to sit down on the drum riser for a few minutes to get his bearings, uh, how Weir was all confused and and Parrish, you know, had on on the stage look over to Weir and hold up four fingers to indicate he had taken four and then keep mouthing to him, Valium very slowly so Bob and anybody else in the first couple of rows could see what he was doing um, and you know people were the story is they were giving him coffee and other stimulants to 
you know, try and pep him up and get him going. And some of the reviews I've read suggest that he was kind of uh, coming out rather slow and, and, and lazy, although that, that uh, Don't Ease Me Instantly doesn't uh, show that. But, uh, you know, it, it, it seems fitting to me that this would be the kind of thing that would happen at SIU Carbondale for Jerry. I don't know if you've ever heard that story, Rob. Yeah, I hadn't until you told me today, and it, it cracks me up. You know, obviously, uh, I, I think almost everyone I know has taken at least a couple of volumes at one time in their life as landing gear at the end of a long night. But uh, taking four to kind of start a night off seems a little bit counterintuitive uh, going into a show. But, you know, hey, what, why not? You know, once in a while, if you, uh, if you want to go for it, it's... Uh, yeah, I guess better than taking like two Zanny bars, you know. <laughs> so I think you're right about that. And and here, uh, Dan, if you've got uh, uh, the next clip lined up for us, and and uh, just to set this up, this is uh, from that sh- uh, from the uh, Carbondale show. They love each other, which is always one of my favorite tunes, anyway. And I think it's always been one of Jerry's favorite tunes, and and he really enjoys playing it. And listen in this next clip here because. Uh, we'll talk about it afterwards. His performance doesn't sound like somebody who's been uh, who's been valiumed out of commission. Go ahead, Dan. I don't know about you, Rob, but if I'm going to see Jerry on any given night with the dead and, and he starts coming out and playing licks like that, I'm not thinking, wow, this guy must be uh, must have had a little too much to drink or, or to swallow backstage. There's nothing wrong with those licks. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly not four volumes, so I don't know. I mean, maybe Parrish's memory is a little different. I always think that Steve is, uh, is prone to some, some storytelling, but, uh, but I can't imagine that he'd... He'd be making it up, or Jerry just had a high tolerance to be able to, uh, to to put down some sedatives. Well, that I would believe, unfortunately. I, I wish I didn't, but that I would believe. But I'm also wondering if, you know, Garcia didn't pull a little sleight of hand on them, and he really didn't swallow the Valiums, but they thought he did, you know, and maybe he had some fun with them that way. Who knows? But either way, you know, it's it's just more dead urban legend lore, and uh, you know, I, I just think it makes uh, the, the you know the the idea about what was going on on stage and and how they were all you know feeling about it, um, uh, you know, really kind of interesting, and um, that that's always the fun of the dead show. You know, you just, you just don't know what Jerry or any of the guys are going to do, and I think their hallmark was pushing the envelope, but then demonstrating that even when they did, they could still go out and perform like professionals. Yeah, and I've always wondered, you know, having hung out with a lot of bands that like to party, uh, whether or not some of those guys like make a, a point of saying, okay, like, how banged up can we get and see if we can still perform at a high level? You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, you look at sort of the classic examples of like the Amy Winehouses or the Jim Morrisons out there that you know, are, are notorious for, for kind of flubbing it or even like, you know, the Weens of the world where Dean Ween and Gene Ween were notorious for, you know, are they going to show up and play the show or not? But, you know, there's other guys that, that were able to, uh, to hold it together while they're really, really fucking high. So, you know, I'd like to think the Grateful Dead were saying, you know, the test pilots on that, you know, starting off in like 1967. But, um, you know, I wonder if there's sort of like, hey, what, what do you think, guys? You know, let's, let's try this one on for size and see how it goes and, you know, see if we can't push it out some experimentation that's based on the influence of, uh, of some sort of, um, you know, outside uh, stimulant or, or relaxant or whatever it is. 
well, sure. I mean, look, let's not forget, you know, these guys were the ones who went to all the acid tests and they drink a cup or two of Owsley's acid all mixed up. And then they'd get up in these weird, you know, totally bizarre settings and play for hours and hours and hours on end. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 seems to me that they they kind of had that ground covered already. Yeah, I, I used to do it with sports. I used to try to you know push the envelope and try different psychedelics and see if I could still ski at a high level. <laughs> so sometimes it worked okay, sometimes it didn't. You know, but uh, and, you know different psychedelics would affect me in different ways. But you know, there's there's times you terrify yourself and go, yeah, probably bridge too far. And other times, you know, you'd be in a really nice groove and it would work out great. Uh, and that's true of like you know like. Look, as long as I'm not behind the wheel of a car operating heavy machinery, I'm pretty much okay with like what my experimentation is as long as I don't think it's going to hurt anyone else, right? And playing music is, is probably about as fun a place to experiment as, uh, as anywhere. If you're up on stage and you've got the chance to, uh, to tweak around and, and get into a different groove than you might otherwise be in, that's the whole idea of, of changing your, um, your mental state, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's right. And, you know, probably the most frustrating thing about this show is that we haven't been, I haven't been able to find it with the entire set list, uh, with the entire show intact, uh, this version uh, that, that we found on archive uh, that we've been listening to and pulling our clips from eliminates a, a substantial portion of the show, most of the second set, and um, uh, you know, big chunks of it, which are unfortunate that we didn't have a chance to, to listen to and be able to talk about, but a, a really good Scarlet Fire from that era uh, is, is played in there, um, and uh, a number of other things are really uh, a nice Black Peter uh, I need a miracle. I guess the miracle is is on this version of it, but uh, uh, on the set list they they close with birth of good lovin' and then U.S. Blues encore. And I, I I've never seen birth of that late in the show. I've I saw it in the second set going into drums. I've seen it open a second set. I've seen it close to the end of a first set. Never seen it though. You know, almost all the way at the end and then part of a. Birth of Good Lovin', which could also just have easily been an opening combination. Yeah, it's certainly a rare one. It doesn't happen too often to, to see it like that. And I, I certainly have never seen it in that slot either. You know, for me, I, I like my birth is consistently right at the beginning of the show to, to start it off, kick it into gear. Uh, but that's also just, you know, the familiarity I had of, of kind of where to where to expect it. But to, like, like yourself, I've seen it open a second set and I've seen it close a first set before. Yep. So, you know, and that's just nice, you know, just Jerry keeping it fresh for everybody and, and we can all appreciate that. You know, that's a nice thing. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's a great show too. Uh, you know, we were joking. There weren't a whole lot of options for February 7th, uh, but and we, we know we've talked a lot about this 1979 kind of winter tour, I guess you would call it. But that was the, that's, you know, for, for this time of year, if we're looking for shows, that's the primary source uh, to draw material out of. And uh, I would agree with you, Rob, that, you know, the first quarter of 1979, we, and we, we've talked about it even in the context of uh, things winding down with Keith and Brent getting ready to jump in uh, in April. And, um, you know, the dead were really playing very well at that time. And I think they had really found a groove um, and, you know, they, they made the change for whatever reasons they felt they had to do it. And, you know, then we've listened to shows in 89 and 90 where we see the exact same thing, where they're in a really, really solid groove with Brent. And unfortunately, we know that that relationship is soon coming to an end. So it's a great time of year to be, it's a great uh, tour to be listening to. Just really, really great material. Nice. Well, I think we're going to hear a little bit more of that uh, as we sign off tonight. But I'm pretty fired up, Larry. we got some pretty good guests coming up the next couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we should definitely let our listeners know. I think, what, Jay Blakesburg's coming back to talk with us again. Is that right? 
Jay Blakesburg is coming back. This will be Jay's third time on our show. He is a true friend of the show. And quite frankly, I find him one of the most interesting characters in the entire Grateful Dead world to talk to. He's He's known primarily for his photography, for which he should be known. It's, it's outstanding. But, but, you know, Jay's one of those guys who, who gets to know everybody and who, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, kind of makes things happen. And, and the last time, as, as fun as it is to hear about his, all of his photo shoots, the story that blew me away uh, was how he was able to arrange to get Jerry's Wolf guitar out of the Museum of Modern Art from the uh, exhibit it was there and over to City Field a few years ago. So John Mayer... Uh, was able to play it at the Dead Show at City Field. And uh, just listening to the story of how they, they got it set up so John could play Wolf, you know, was a story I hadn't heard. And, uh, and there's only a handful of guys that could pull that off. You know, there, there aren't too many people that can actually like, say, you know, hey, John Mayer needs a guitar, let me make this happen. Jay Blakesbury actually has that kind of uh, internal pull within the organization. You know, he was, uh, you know, for Fairly Well was the official um, photographer for the event, and his book came out afterwards that was sent to everyone that had a VIP ticket. You know, he, he's been there now for years and years and years. And by the way, I, I haven't actually gotten a chance to speak with him yet. You know, he was, uh, he was on twice when it was just you and Jim, so this is my first chance to actually be on with Jay, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, you, you'll, you'll, you know, for a, for a techno nerd, you'll love it because he's, he's going to be able to give you everything. And something else he's going to be able to talk to us about, and this is going to be really fascinating, uh, he was down at Plane in the Sand. And, and he was actually down there already before the show was called off. And he stayed for a few days and did his slideshow that he had put together, this whole slideshow presentation at the resort around the pool in the evenings. And I've heard many comments and read many comments from other deadheads who had flown down there and then, you know, kind of, you know, got the rug pulled underneath them after they got there and all of a sudden the dead announced we're not here anymore. And they all gave huge props to Jay uh, for giving them a nightly Grateful Dead event that they could all go and gather together and still kind of get the feel of what they were looking for uh, to be down there with all the deadheads. So I would definitely want to be hearing about that from him as well. I was about to say, I mean, that's going to be pretty much uh, topic number one for uh, for that discussion. And who else do we have? We, have, we got a couple other people coming back as well, huh? So uh, we, Stu, Stu Sallow thinks coming back with us? Stu Sallow, hopefully, and also we're going to be having uh, Steve Berkman in a couple of weeks, uh, who's with uh, the Panther Fund. That should be an interesting one, too. Um, and, and there's many, many more down the road who we're in the process of working out booking right now. And uh, I think it's just going to get better and better with the folks that we can bring on. And hopefully people will keep listening and uh, spread the word and uh, let people know this is the place to be and to hang out to hear about the dead and marijuana. Yeah, fantastic. So until next week, um, thanks for another uh, great week of conversation and you know, Grateful Dead talk that I always uh, look forward to every week. And thanks to all our listeners out there. And from uh, sunny Southern California and Linnea Holdings, uh, Rob Hunt signing off until next Wednesday. Thank you, Rob. Larry Mishkin also signing off. Uh, everyone have a great week. Um, in the uh, immortal words of our good friends uh, in Tedeschi Trucks, let's go get stoned and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And now, Dan, if you will please spin us out uh, with a little bit of uh, vintage disco dead uh, dancing in the streets uh, from our uh, February 7th, 1979 show. Thanks, everyone.
listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.